Welcome to the Insightful Investor Podcast, a weekly series that seeks to share industry, investment, and market insights. We define insights as concepts that are counterintuitive, widely misunderstood, or underappreciated. In other words, unique ideas that you probably won't hear elsewhere. I'm Alex Shahidi, the host of the podcast and co-CIO of Evoke Advisors, one of the nation's leading investment advisory firms. Learn more about our show at insightfulinvestor.org. Today's guest is Vinir Bansali, who is the founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha, uh, which you founded in 2015 after spending 15 years as a portfolio manager at PIMCO, uh, focusing on quantitative strategies and uh, tail risk hedging, which hopefully we'll spend a lot of time on today. Vinir, thank you for uh, chatting with me today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Um, I, Vinir, I have to say, uh, your background is extremely impressive uh, and unique for a portfolio manager. Uh, so, you know, physics, master's uh, from Caltech, uh, PhD in theoretical physics from Harvard. Um, would you talk about how you got interested originally in physics and how that eventually evolved into investing? Yeah, I think, you know, my interest in science actually happened when I was growing up in India. So I came to the U.S. when I was 18, uh, 17 and a half to go to Caltech. But uh, I was living in a small town in India, and my great uncle, uh, who was a physicist, um, sort of discovered when I was maybe 14 or 15 that I was pretty good at math. So he sort of took me under his wing and basically uh, teach me about things like relativity and so on. And when it came time, when I was about 16 or 17, uh, he encouraged me to apply to Caltech and Caltech, the U- U.S. and all of that was very strange. It was like, no, in this, I was in a small desert town in India. <clears throat> long story short, I applied and there was a whole long story around that, but um, got in and, you know, uh, my parents borrowed some money and got on a first one-way ticket to get to Caltech, primarily because Richard Feynman was there. And I had the great fortune of actually um, spending about three or four years uh, as an undergraduate at Caltech when Feynman was still there. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, once you meet a person like that, you get completely put under a spell, which is what happened to me. And I I absolutely decided that theoretical physics was what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be a professor and, um, you know, just try to figure out the secrets of, uh, of the universe. Yeah, so that's basically how this whole thing started. As you can tell, I'm not no longer doing physics for a living. But uh, definitely, uh, foundationally, that was very important for me. And how did that transition occur, where you kind of transitioned from physics to the investment world? So um, when I was finishing my PhD at Harvard in in theoretical physics, this is, uh, and I'll go back to the 86, 87 period uh, and the 90s, uh, you know, I was working on particle physics, phenomenology. And I think one of the jobs that you I could get right after finishing my PhD was to be a postdoc at the superconducting supercollider, which was this big accelerator that uh, was designed and it was going to smash um, particles at very, very high energies. Now, unfortunately, right there in 91, 92, uh, the collider got canceled. Uh, I didn't realize part of the reason it got canceled is because we were going through a recession. I don't even know what a recession was, but when the collider got canceled, my job got canceled. And um, obviously, I stuck around. At that same time, Goldman Sachs was looking for derivatives traders. Uh, I got interviewed. I had no interest. Went to Wall Street, uh, interviewed with an older gentleman by the name of Fisher Black, which I later find out was Fisher Black. I didn't even know who he was. Uh, got a job offer, decided not to go to Goldman. Instead, uh, decided to just you know take a sabbatical from my postdoc, which was supposed to be in France. Uh, went to Citibank just to learn a uh, little bit about Wall Street. Uh, again, to be very honest, I had absolutely no interest in the world of finance. And I thought my life in finance would be exactly six months to a year. Uh, now, you know, uh, it turned out that I happened to join Citibank, the derivatives team, exactly at the right time uh, when exotic derivatives uh, were coming into their heyday. And very quickly, within about six months to a year, became uh, the head of the desk. And uh, Call, talk about um, one-eyed man in the land of the blind. Uh, I, I could write Monte Carlo code, so uh, I became became a specialist, and uh, that's basically how this whole thing started. Interesting. And 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 how would you connect 
what you've learned in, you know, from your learnings in science to uh, investments? Uh, I assume there's some overlap. And, and in general, do you think investing is more science or art or is it both? Uh, I think in, investing, I mean, it's more than just science and art. I think it's a lot of psychology, a lot of greed and fear, a lot of evolutionary biology. I, I don't even know what field it is. I mean, I think investing is probably, uh, you know, like maybe music, one of the original uh, fields uh, that has existed even maybe prior to literacy. Uh, so it's, it's a very, very deep thing. People like to gamble. People like to trade. People like to invest. People like to see money growing. So I think it brings in uh, everything, including self-control, which maybe, I don't know, nobody's probably talked about this, but you know, maybe investing is a little bit of yoga also because you kind of have to focus and be very self-disciplined in terms of what you do. Uh, you can control yourself. You can't control the markets, obviously. But, um, you know, the connection to physics and the connection to science is really, you know, it's almost like an analogy. Science allows you to have very rigorous, solid tools. And um, through the process of doing a PhD in physics, you absolutely learn how to think systematically, rigorously, be very resilient, don't give up, try to get to the bottom of things, really take the onion, peel the onion until you get to the bottom of it. I think that's the toolkit from science that has at least served me really well because I've never, I mean, I've, of course, I've read all the literature after I started in finance, you know, and I do publish a lot and write a lot, uh, including academic type of uh, work. But uh, I've really learned the job on the job. Um, so, Having a science background, especially a physics and math background, gave me the ability to build the tools myself, uh, which is what I do. And as a matter of fact, just earlier this morning, I went back to some stuff that I had probably learned when I was an undergraduate on just, you know, simple Fourier decomposition. They call them, uh, you know, and just trying to understand signals uh, for one of our strategies, trying to see how to take that uh, physics and math trading to figure out what the potential of drawdowns is in a time series. So so it's a toolkit, which once you learn it and once you know where to find it and how to apply it, that's really valuable, which is why scientists generally end up doing you know, reasonably well, in my view, in investing. I think it's also helpful to recognize that it's not all science. Uh, and yeah, and those, other, those other dimensions that you describe, uh, I, I feel like I've, I've met some investors who have I guess overconfidence that they've distilled it all down to science, and then something goes haywire that their their models didn't project, and it kind of wipes them out. So I think having that perspective is really important. Yeah, that's very important. I think what you just said is really critical. It's uh, models are models. Models are not reality, and they're just they have a lot of imperfection, as we all know. And uh, you combine uh, you know hubris, model hubris, with a lot of leverage. Uh, sooner or later, something that the model does not capture is going to happen. And if you're levered up, you may or may not survive it. So I think if you believe in models, model-based quantitative trading, like we do here, you really have to be uh, very humble in terms of, you know, knowing what you don't know, or at least realizing that you don't know a lot. So the leverage that you have in the portfolio, you need to control it. And then, you know, we'll talk about this a little later on. Uh, whenever there you're taking risk and leverage creates attractive returns, it creates the potential of severe losses and severe drawdowns, which is where tail risk management, tail risk hedging comes in. Because it really, at the end of the day, what it does is it controls against that uncertain thing that uh, is not in your statistical data set and, uh, and, and it continuously happens a lot. So, yes, completely agree with you. I think uh, model hubris along with uh, thinking of investment as too much science uh, along with leverage can only lead to trouble. So you got to be very humble about it. Completely agreed. Before we transition to talking about risk, which I think is just a fascinating subject, uh, I have to ask you about uh, your your other passions. You're an ultra marathon runner. I don't know if I've ever yeah. met one. And you're also a pilot, right? You've flown 4,000 hours, you know, jets, helicopters, et cetera. I'm really curious how those interests uh, arose and how do you have time to do those things as well? I don't know, endorphins, I don't know. I, I mean, I just gave them for a run right before this, you know, to just get my energy level up. We start pretty early or four o'clock in the morning as you do too, living on the West Coast. You know, it's, it's, so, uh, you know, for me, it's like everything is converged. All these activities are actually uh, just different forms of application of uh, the same thing, basically. It's, you know, I'm a, I'm a deep learner in the sense that once I get into something, I have an obsessive tendency to actually see, you know, what's 
the next step in this specific field. So that's, uh, and I also compartmentalize. So obviously finance allows you to do that. And then ultra running, uh, is a nice compliment to finance because ultra running just means anything longer than a, you know, 26 mile run uh, or race. And, you know, I've now done, I started kind of late, but I've done about 60 of them, including 13 or 1400 mile races. The longest one I ran nonstop was about 42 something hours, uh, the Mont Blanc ultra, ultra trail to Mont Blanc. I just did one last year, which I wasn't expecting to finish, but I ended up doing way better than I thought. This is up at high altitude in Colorado. Uh, and when you come out, you get the sense that, um, you know, as long as you plan, I think this is probably the common denominator between investing, ultra running, uh, which is a very mental sport and aviation uh, flying, which I'm also quite passionate about, is uh, that it's all about having a plan, uh, sticking to your plan, but also allowing for contingencies and measuring you know, energy expenditure, if you want to call it that, that's pretty critical in ultra running as it is in aviation. And there's an analog of that in finance is your risk budget, like how do you spend it? So as long as you plan for it, you organize it, I think they all become basically one field, different applications of it. And for me, personally, they've been very complimentary because uh, I usually fly to go for my races. So I get the flying in, I get the running in. And... um Fortunately for me, finance has been pretty good, so that pays for the for the time and, and, and the flying boat. So, anyways, it's it's, it's been very good for me. And um, uh, again, you know, one more thing on finding time, I have found uh, one of my partners, Jim Muzzy at Timco. Many years ago, he he told me uh, a secret. He said uh, the secret to surviving in finance and doing well is to basically exercise and work out. Uh, pretty much every day. And he did it religiously. I do it religiously. And I think it creates time. So, so to the contrary, doing more activities that are fulfilling and um, are helpful, at least for me, they create time. So I find uh, there's more um, energy to do other things. Yeah. And I guess that's also related to efficiency and, and prioritization. Right. We all have yeah. 24 hours, right? You have a certain amount of time for sleep and, and the critical things you need to survive. And then you have to decide how you fill the rest of that time and how efficiently you execute. And, and the more energized you are and the more you're able to uh, create these different uh, priorities and, and execute on all those, uh, you will, can probably be a lot more productive. And, you know, I've, I've always Absolutely. felt that if you have, you know, eight hours to do something, you'll take eight hours. If you have four hours to do the same thing, you'll, you'll figure out a way to do it in four hours. Exactly. And I love my sleep, too. I mean, I sleep like everybody else. I sleep seven, eight hours a night every night and love waking up fresh. But then, uh, you know, I do religiously work out and I do religiously do my uh, studying and reading and all the other things we talked about. I'm curious, are there uh, other similarities between long distance running and, you know, flying a plane to investing? I think, yeah, a lot of it is understanding. The one that we talked about, right, is just having a plan, knowing kind of the big picture, having the patience and the resilience and the endurance, which is true in all three fields. The other one is also going back to first principles, right, which is what is it? What When you're running a long race, what is the point? The point is to get to the finish line under the allotted time, and that requires certain type of decisions you have to make. Uh, when you're flying uh, in an aircraft, of course, same thing. You're going from point A to point Z or point A to point B, the destination safely, and then you are planning and training for contingencies like emergencies and so on. But the but the goal is very clear, and everything else that basically is uh, is you know you make the decision you're making is part and parcel of actually achieving that goal. Uh, investing is the same thing. The point is to take your portfolio from a point A to point B, which could be growth or could be, you know, whatever your clients tell you or what your benchmark might be. Uh, what's the best way from going to point A to point B? And and what that does is it distills down the essential decisions you have to make. And it actually creates a dynamic decision-making process, which is very critical. Let me just give you an example. When I, you know, when I'm running a long race, um, without question, somewhere in, you know, the 20th hour or 60, 70 miles in, I'm not feeling very good, and everybody who's running these things is not feeling good. Even the uh, the elites are not feeling very good. But at that point, if you have trained well enough, uh, you know that you have a set of decision-making rules, and you can say, well, I know I've trained for it. I know what I'm supposed to do right now, and I'm not feeling good. Either hydrate or eat or slow down or 
take care of the heating or whatever it is so that I can stick to the plan. I think that's probably the biggest similarity between all three of these fields and maybe some other fields that I'm quite involved with right now uh, is knowing what the objective is and then figuring out what are the bare essentials that you need to do uh, in a very uh, solid way to get to that point. Yeah, the way I think about it, and I'm curious if, if you agree or not, is if, you're, if your goal is to go from point A to point B with some uh, objective like time or or volatility or however way you want to think about it, I think of it as there's two goals. The first goal is to get to point B, okay? The second goal is to do it under a certain amount of time with a certain path that you travel. And, and, I, and I always consider that the biggest priority is just don't take a catastrophic loss, right? If you're running a 100-mile race and at mile 80, you just collapse and you can't complete it, then everything you did before that doesn't really matter as much. Absolutely. Um, and, and same thing as flying a plane, right? If you don't make it to point B, it doesn't matter that you're ahead of, of track, you know, you're ahead of your pace getting there. And I think investing is the same. And I think it's oftentimes underappreciated how much risk there actually is and, and just this focus on avoiding catastrophic loss. Absolutely. I think I couldn't have said it better. I think that's exactly right. Because if you're out of the game, you're out of the game. And you cannot ever uh, get knocked out, right? And and we'll talk again a little bit more about hedging and so on. The point is not to eliminate risk. The point is not to ever be in a situation where a catastrophic loss or risk can take you out of the game because then you don't get the benefit of what we all know is the secret to long-term investing. It's compounding. You want, you absolutely want to stay in the game. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a very, very important point. Uh, planning and good decision-making hopefully keeps you out of that catastrophic loss situation. Yeah, and risk is one of those things that it's a concept that is just, for most people, it's hard to really appreciate uh, because risk is not always apparent. You know, there's a lot of times where there's actually a lot of risk and you just don't see it. Uh, and you've spent your career helping people understand risk better uh, and learning how to manage it better. Uh, is there a framework that we can start by, uh, you know, start this conversation by you describing that you think would be helpful for investors to try to understand? Yeah, I think it's super important. And I think it's a very, very important question. So about five or six years ago, I started collaborating with a, a couple of other people. We never finished writing the paper, but but the question was, and this is at one of our uh, firm risk forums that we had here, the question came up, uh, what does risk mean to you? And there were about 10 very, very senior decision makers who are you know, all CIO levels at very large public pensions and endowments and so on. And uh, when we went around, the, the biggest conclusion from that discussion was that risk means a very different thing to uh, different people. There's no one unique definition. For one investor, it might mean uh, volatility. One investor might be underperforming their benchmark. One investor might be permanent drawdown risk. Another investor might be not being able to meet their obligations you know, to uh, their retirees or uh, or whatever. So the definition of risk is very different. And I think one of the problems with academic finance is, is that um, these little sound bites like variance or volatility or you know, value at risk have become embedded as the only definition of risk. So from my perspective, and this is sort of what I have specialized in now for the last you know, 20 something odd years, is really working with investors for uh, in solving their definition of risk. So what does that mean? is not just going and saying, let's apply um, a framework of just volatility or standard deviation or something like that, but saying, okay, what is your total portfolio, your portfolio? And I know uh, you've written a lot, a lot about this in your two books as well. So I, I think that some of this will resonate with you, is looking at the full probability distribution of outcomes, uh, whether it's just financial assets or financial assets and liabilities, or maybe even things like human capital. Uh, but generally, you know, for us, for the investment clients we have, it's primarily about their asset portfolio. And then you can look at the whole probability distribution. And when you look at the probability distribution, it tells you what is the outcome, what is the likelihood of a certain bad outcome happening um, with a certain probability? And is that something that they can bear and live with? Uh, in other words, if that bad event happens, whatever it might be, are they going to either uh, stick to what they're doing? Are they going to change their response function? Or are they going to be in a position where they're going to be uh, energized to do something additional, i.e. they'll be benefiting from that outcome? Depending on the answer to that question, we then can determine whether there's too much risk, exactly the right amount of risk, or too little risk in their portfolio. And that's how we have defined it. And, and I think this whole idea of 
looking at the full probability distribution through the horizon of the investments and then solving for specific uh, tools, uh, whether it's adding new asset classes or adding hedges that improve um, in academic finance, people would call uh, dominate the existing solution. So can you find something, can you find a set of tools or strategies that'll dominate your current portfolio? And if it does that, then you have solved a risk problem. Uh, and again, there are certain investors, you know, you call that ideal risk neutral investor that would do, doesn't really exist except for in the books, who uh, you can say um, is very homogeneous like everybody else. That investor probably has volatility or variance or standard deviation as possibly a good enough risk metric. Uh, but you know, that's a very generic solution. And we don't believe that that generic solution uh, really should apply to uh, large investors. Everybody's situation is different and, uh, and hence they need to look at risk in a different way. Yeah, the way I've, I've described it to uh, people from a conceptual framework is, so imagine you walk into a casino and there are, you know, 10 roulette tables and it's very visible what the potential outcomes are. You get one spin of the wheel. And let's say there's 100 spaces. You get one spin of the wheel and wherever it lands, that's your return for 10 or 20 years because you're deciding which investment strategy do I want right. to apply. And one of those wheels has 75 spaces that has a good outcome, you know, 24 that's a bad outcome and one that wipes you out. You know, another yeah. wheel might have, you know, 99 bad outcomes and one phenomenal outcome. And if you had full visibility into what the actual risk is across all these, you can make an informed decision about which wheel do you want to spin. So I think conceptually, if you, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. And I think that's kind of related to what you just said. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as, like you said, and, you know, taking your example one step further, uh, the roulette wheel is very, very complex. And it's, you know, nobody knows. Well, of course, there are people who tried to beat it by you know, creating all kinds of uh, you know, radio stuff. There's some great books on that topic, but um, but yeah, it's a very complex physical object, and uh, describing the equations of motion that determine the roulette wheel is not simple. But having said that, you don't need to be that smart. You don't need to solve the equation of motion because, like you just said, placing all your bets on one thing and that only on that thing is probably not a good idea, even though you don't know the to total physics of it. So. Uh, I think, yeah, spreading out your bets, diversifying, making sure that you're managed because uncertainty is so high is probably a good decision. Yeah. What do you think are some common misperceptions about risk and the concept of risk? I think one of the ones we just talked about is that it's a homogeneous thing. And I think it's too pervasive. I've, I was in a number of recent conferences with, you know, some very important people and, and some a lot of consultants. And what I found is that because of the toolkit that is now available easily 50 years ago when Harry Markowitz was inventing um, the modern portfolio theory and mean variance optimization was new, uh, it was a quantum level shift in terms of uh, you know what people could do for better risk management. Uh, but 60 years later, the fact that you know we have a lot more tools and markets are more complex, the fact that people are still using that as a workhorse. Um, for risk mitigation, uh, uh, in my view, leaves a lot on the table. It leaves uh, not only risk, but a lot of untapped latent risk and possibly a lot of opportunity on the table. So I think one of the biggest mistakes is uh, institutionalization of simple metrics that have found their way into you know very simple uh, calculators with have, which have their limitations. Uh, I think it doesn't mean that you abandon these simple tools. Certainly, we should keep these simple tools because they're very useful, but but just relying on them to make extremely consequential, multi-period, long-term dynamic decisions is just very, very suboptimal in my view. Yeah, you would think that we would learn over time. But what I've experienced is market cycles are long enough where the lessons of the last bad cycle get lost with time. And, and you know, I, I feel like uh, investors generally think that there's a lot of data that they can point to. But in reality, it's very it's very limited data, um, and and you know what what is probably going to happen in the future likely hasn't happened in the past. There may be you know there may be similarities, but it's likely on you know not in the historical data set, uh, which kind of relates to these one in a hundred year type of events happen far more often than once every hundred years. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree with that, and I think uh, one of the issues with relying just on data to set investment 
historical data is that investment policy or investment views for the long term is that you're betting, uh, you know, you said it, uh, is that, that you believe that the future will look like the past, but we know the future never looks like the past exactly because people innovate, people go to work and new things are invented. There's changes in markets, there are changes in uh, politics, philosophy, governance, whatever you might want to call it. And so if the future is not going to look like the past, how can we rely on historical data to make the most important decision? It's a good starting point, but it should not be the place where you stop always. Yeah, that's how people get in trouble. Are there other lessons or observations you've had about risk in your you know, multi-decade career? Yeah, I think you know one thing that we've begun to, uh, again, I've been doing this for 30-something odd years, and you know, one thing about risk that I have I've realized is this whole idea of uh, very deeply embedded, in, including myself. You know, I've been doing this professionally for a long time. Is this problem of time inconsistency, which is uh, is that uh, people plan and they uh, they create portfolios or they might create a set of decision rules which they believe, and they usually do that. You know, when things are calm and nothing bad is happening and they believe that they'll be able to stick to that plan over a long period of time. What I have found in my own experience is that that's the exception rather than the rule. And uh, inevitably something strange or unexpected happens and a lot of those plans just get thrown out haywire. So one of the things that I have realized uh, is not an innovation uh, necessarily, uh, but it's just uh, the realization that to the degree that you can create external uh, nudges or motivators for people to stick to the plan and uh, to the degree you can use markets. Now, uh, obviously, we're going to talk about options here a little bit, but uh, you can use certain types of markets like options markets to actually outsource your time inconsistency problem. The fact that you can change your mind in the heat of the battle problem to the markets, it just allows you to not make the wrong decisions at the wrong time. For instance, uh, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this like, like I have, that everybody says if the market goes down 20% or 30% or 40%, I'm going to buy uh, X percent more stocks. But we've seen in many episodes that when the market goes down that much, either people get frozen, they don't do anything, or worse still, they say, well, this is different, let's sell. So they actually sell, they liquidate, and inevitably the market turns around and starts rallying, and uh, that mistake then gets locked in. So. So there's ways, there's uh, tools, and that's just a very human uh, response function. There's nothing wrong with it because it's a survival mechanism. But there are tools that allow you to effectively cancel out the more egregious parts of that heat of the battle type of decision making. So, you know, one thing that I have learned is is actually building enough guardrails uh, and enough constraints in your process so that you never get to the point where you are actually making large, consequential, irrational decisions just in the heat of the moment. Yeah, protect yourself from yourself. Exactly. That's exactly right. Protect yourself from yourself. And again, yourself doesn't mean just you as an individual. Uh, I've, I've been on a number of investment committees, and you know, it's entirely possible for investment committees and a group of very smart people all to do this, even though uh, they're independent people. But you know, the group think uh, in moments of fear actually ends up dominating uh, a lot of the rationality. Yeah, there was a famous quote by Mike Tyson. Uh, I'm sure you've yeah. heard it. You know, everybody has a yeah. plan until they get punched in the face. Exactly. And then the plan changes. Yeah. How do you define tail risk? Uh, I know it's a it's a subject that you've spent a lot of time on and and worked in and written about, and and why build a firm around this notion of tail risk? Again, it's one of these things which is very hard to precisely define. Of course, you know, when we build portfolios, tail risk hedging portfolios, we're defining parameters like horizon over which a big loss can happen, likelihood of losses and attachment points, i.e. the the magnitude of the losses and so on. But it's not, again, like uh, risk in general, it's not one definition for everybody. So tail risk obviously changes. Somebody could who's got a lot of equities might have tail risk related to equity markets falling. Somebody who's got a lot of bonds might have tail risk related to inflation rising, for instance, the last couple of years. So again, it's very hard to define it as one type of risk for everybody. But at a very high level, the way I think about it is a low probability event that has a large enough severity that it can impair your decision-making process, right? So that's a very high-level abstract notion is that you have a plan. Every institutional investor has a plan 
to do something, but an event happens which is not in your statistics or you're not looking for it, that is such large magnitude that, again, like we were just speaking about before, it throws your pl plans temporarily or maybe semi-permanently um, out the window. So how do you manage against that? But to me, to me tail risk is um, once you come from this framework, it allows you to uh, create strategies, hedging portfolios. Like you said, you know, I spend my pretty much my whole financial life doing this um, to mitigate this uh, the impact of this very severe low probability event. And I'm curious, why do you think these tail events happen in the first place? And is it something that's predictable at all? So that's a great, again, a great uh, thing to think about. I've, again, I spend a lot of time thinking about it, not just, you know, in the context of finance, but also in the context of things like earthquakes and hurricanes and uh, physical phenomena and so on. Um, so why do they happen? I think typically they happen because of some sort of instability that is brewing inside the system that gets magnified, right? So what does that mean? In the financial markets, what that means is is there's something that's distorted so let's take an example uh today for instance uh inverted yield curves inverted yield curves is what i call um sand in the machine and i've written a number of pieces about this on forbes and other places but the financial system works because there is a um, cost to lending money for longer you borrow money and like if you're a bank you borrow money uh short you lend it long and you make the carry so our financial system is basically based on this idea of having carry, the fact that there's compensation for giving, putting your money out. Investors who invest in large capital projects do that because over time they expect that long-term projects will return you more than short-term uh, risk-free rates. Now today the curve is inverted, which means that there is negative carry in many different areas. There's negative carry in the bond markets. There's negative carry in the equity markets. One way of looking at it is saying, Interest rates are higher than dividend yields, which means that equity markets today are basically pricing in forward equity rate or prices that are much higher than spot. And, and you can go, you know, look at currencies and, and other markets. So what ends up happening is uh, when the system gets into a situation for good reasons here, the good reason is uh, rates were very low. They were negative. Central banks ease policy. They created inflation. Then they had to step on the breaks jack up short-term rates, but long-term rates haven't gone up very much. So you are in this artificial, somewhat unsustainable situation. And you take this situation and combine it with the inherent human tendency to take risk, i.e. leverage. When leverage doesn't work very well in a negatively yielding environment, and in an environment where there's too much leverage and when volatility is very low. So tail risks happen because of a number of things, right? The first is distortions that come from macro events, uh, which is, I described one one case here. Another reason is complacency. So you look at volatility levels today, even though the market is um, at its highs, implied volatility, if you measure by VIX, is basically pre-2008 crisis levels, almost extremely low. Um, and then the third is leverage and, uh, and this uh, thinking that nothing can go wrong. Uh, when you combine this, the original two drivers of investment movements or market movements come in, which is fear and greed. Uh, people end up going in the direction of buying too much at the wrong time. When the market's turned, they end up selling it, liquidating it, fear and greed. So tail risk happened because of the confluence of market distortions, pricing, too much leverage, too much complacency, and then people's dynamic tendency to not take too much pain, whether it's on the side of liquidating assets or um, uh, buying assets if they if their neighbors are you know uh, doing very well being long the equity market or something like that so so it's going to keep happening in my view uh, is it predictable it's not predictable in the sense of point estimates just like you can't predict earthquakes precisely but what the way I look at it uh, is it's the hazard rate the likelihood of something bad happening you can forecast with a relatively high degree of accuracy it's just like a good analogy would be. Um, if I'm out today in California driving, um, you know, it's it's a nice dry day. It's uh, no rains. It's not very slippery. Uh, driving, you know, it's probably fairly safe today in terms of these weather conditions. But you take that same car, same driver, put them in an icy road, you know, in Minnesota in the middle of a storm and low visibility. Now, you know that the same conditions, the same actions could result in a pretty nasty accident. So in that sense... 
my behavior uh, doesn't predict tail risks in California, but it certainly predicts the higher likelihood of tail risks in Minnesota on a cold, wintry, stormy day. Um, so I think, yes, uh, environmental conditions, market behavior, if you put them all together, investors who've been doing this for a long time, like myself, uh, sensing cycles turning, start sensing damage potentially. This morning, uh, we saw news from New York with the implosion of a bank uh, that got effectively bailed out last year. Uh, today, the stock price dropped by 50%, right? So those kind of signals come out of nowhere. And uh, for somebody who's been paying attention, uh, those type of events are somewhat inevitable. The thing that I think is really interesting and, and I guess in some ways unique about the markets relative to the rest of the world is market pricing is impacted by investor sentiment, right? So so, so it's like that example that you just explained about driving in you know, sunny California versus driving in freezing Minnesota. It's, it's almost like if you had the, the drivers in Minnesota feel like they were driving in, in sunny Southern California and they were driving like it's sunny, but because they don't see the ice and the snow, uh, in, in yeah. some ways, the risk is elevated even beyond what the conditions would suggest. And then as an outside Absolutely. observer, if you have that perspective to see that these people are viewing it that way, you may have even better insight into the risks of some you know, catastrophic event. Correct. That's right. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, there's various cases, right? So we saw back in 07, 08, before the financial crisis, and I was at PIMCO at that time, and, you know, my colleagues, uh, famously Bill Gross and others, uh, saw what was happening in our Southern California housing market, and then they saw it is not. With rates doing what they're doing and uh, amount of credit and what people are doing, these are nor not normal situation, not normal conditions. And at some point, this is a very slippery, dangerous road to be in. So we tightened our seatbelts. We got off the road, so to speak. And of course, um, you know, we missed a good fraction of euphoria for a few months. But then when the fat tail event happened, it was so large that anything that you had left on the side of the table uh, on the side of the road didn't really matter because the losses were so significant. And you made a very important point, which is the timing is not you can't get the timing right. Uh, and if you did, you maybe just got lucky because so much of it depends on factors that you can't predict. Um, so you could you could be two years early and look like an idiot for a long period of time until you're you're proven right. So that's one of the other challenges in markets. 100%, yeah. Yeah, so that's why, I mean, just to echo that, yeah, you know, we, we say the forecasting the probability is not as important as making sure that you control the severity, control the damage from the severity, right? Because if there's a knockout punch, like we started this conversation with, that can take you out of the game, it doesn't really matter if you got the probability right or not. If it knocks you out, it knocks you out, you're out. So never, or try never to let that happen. Yeah. In, in terms of hedging that tail risk, uh, why, don't we, why don't we begin with a, just a conceptual discussion about how investors can at least think about hedging that tail risk? Yeah, so, you know, we are, uh, our approach, and this is a framework that obviously has developed now for me over the last 30 something odd years I've been doing it, um, is that it's, uh, you know, I'd like to distinguish the, the approach from the tools, right? So there are tools like, we'll talk about options and futures and derivatives and all that kind of stuff from the approach. Those are just implementations that, you know, some people like certain reliability or, or uh, you know, some people don't. But but let's go to the framework. What is the framework? The framework is that if you look at your full probability distribution and you're not willing to take a loss of a certain magnitude, uh, then you need to do something about it. And in the marketplace, there's various things you can do. You can look at very simply. First thing you can do is use diversification. So you've written books on this topic. Risk parity is a great example of balancing stocks versus bonds based on correlations and so on, you know, and this works beautifully as long as that correlation is negative and there's not the risk of deleveraging in the fixed income side. Then there's other tools like trend following, CTAs. I mean, those are other techniques that are conceptually techniques that allow you to um, systematically, without being subject to behavioral biases, go away from the mean reversion, you know, mental bias to just try to catch a falling knife, so to speak. So trend following or CTA strategies also help in terms of diversification. Then you have things, you know, like um, using explicit options that I talked about or having cash or, uh, you know, a few other things, alternative risk premium strategy and so on. So these are all part of the framework. And the framework really relies on taking 
a look at your existing portfolio plus what you could do such that the total distribution of the portfolio is basically within the realm of what you are actually trying to do. You go from that approach. Once you've done that, you say, okay, what are the most efficient liquid tools and in what combination? So some of the things I mentioned, for instance, risk parity, how much should risk parity, risk rebalancing should you do? How much trend following should you put in there if that's something that you're interested in? How much explicit optionality, how much cash? And that balance you can now evaluate because each one of these approaches or tools that I just described is in a form of taking exposure to an unforeseen event that is accompanied with volatility rising. So our framework relies on saying, what is everything out there in the toolkit that an investor can put in their portfolio? How do you combine them together such that the net portfolio, including what the investor already has, plus this new stuff ends up in a better place? So, you know, that, that's our framework. Um, there are occasions when an investor might have a lot of equity risk and for whatever reason, they don't want to suffer a drawdown and they want the hedge to be extremely reliable and extremely cost efficient. We would recommend options, even though we know, generally speaking, options will cost time decay and bleed and so on. Because, but that's like buying insurance because that will actually protect them. There are times when investors say, look, you know, I'm not worried about the reliability. I just don't want to spend too much money in which case we'll direct them towards more internal diversification or de-risking their portfolio or putting more money into cash. You know, right now that's a great strategy because, uh, you know, cash is yielding five and a half percent. So if you're willing to, you know, give up a little bit uh, of your risky portfolio, you can get pretty solid protection uh, against risk uh, while getting five, five and a half percent yield on a simple treasury bill. And, and I'm curious, what are some of the mistakes you've seen investors make when trying to protect their portfolio against some of these tail risks? Yeah, so, you know, probably the biggest one uh, I have seen is uh, not thinking of this as a part of, quote unquote, doing business. Meaning if you're an investor, just like if you're sitting on the coast of or living on the coast of Florida in a, in a hurricane or you live in California, we all have earthquake insurance here thinking of having some sort of protection, whether it's through explicit options or trend following or risk parity or other diversification strategy as a luxury rather than a necessity, right? And if you don't think of this as a necessity to long-term performance, and there's a lot of literature, including some of our own research that shows that if you create a robust portfolio and you make, you know, really not great decisions, but reasonably good decisions, the compounding will create a lot better profile of wealth growth. What investors tend to do is not protect, not take that important decision of saying manage risk when managing risk is cheap like it is today. But then when the bad event happens, surge towards buying you know, hurricane insurance after the storm or earthquake insurance after the earthquake. So this pro-cyclical behavior in terms of balancing the portfolio results in generally suboptimal uh, portfolio construction. And, uh, you know, as we both know is, um, you know, if you just bought the stock market, uh, just hung on to it and done nothing, you would end up pretty much beating pretty much any investment that's out there. But if you bought the stock market levered, you would have such significant drawdowns that you would probably not be able to take the pain. So what's the counterbalance? The counterbalance is just take enough risk so you don't get liquidated. If you have too much risk, you think that you can't handle, then think about it in times like today and saying, what am I going to do? Not what I want to do, but what am I actually going to do in a bad event? And then is there something I can do to uh, save myself from myself in that bad event? Uh, and I think that's the biggest psychological mistake uh, that I've seen happen repeatedly. I mean, some of some other mistakes are you know legendary where uh, you know people uh, buy hedges, they don't cost too much money cumulatively over time, but then um, you know, right before a big bad event, uh, they decide that uh, they don't need it anymore, and then they uh, shut it off. And then, of course, the big bad event comes knocking on the door. So, um, you know, so having a plan, not sticking to the plan, abandoning the plan uh, uh, at the wrong time is probably the biggest mistake. Yeah. And and all of this relates back to our earlier conversation about uh, risk being a concept that is just. Such so widely misunderstood, it's hard to grasp because it's not always apparent. And and yep. what's interesting about markets, and this also relates to our discussion about pricing, 
when risk protection and you know tail protection is cheaper, it's probably because backward looking, there hasn't been a need for for protection. Investors generally don't think they need protection, so the price falls. And at the same time, the risk is probably greater, and vice versa. Right after the big event, the cost of protection goes up a lot, and you probably need it less then than you did when everybody was complacent and not worried about the risk. Absolutely, and yeah, and and you know, again, like you said earlier. You know the 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 wonderful difference between markets and 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 science like physics is that uh, we create in markets we create our own stories and own rhetoric and our actions create the markets that we then have to live with tomorrow. The very dynamic the feedback loop is extremely important here, right? And and so when volatility is low, that typically means that uh, asset prices are high. Asset prices are high means yields are generally low, which typically means there's strategies like volatility selling, which we talked about. Uh, you know, a lot in, in, in 2018, I wrote a paper right before the XIV debacle. This is even prior to COVID, uh, when, you know, every academic and every practitioner was talking about how amazing the sharp ratio of all selling is. And, uh, you know, you have ETF, ETFs invested. So everybody got on that bandwagon just at the wrong time. And of course, when, uh, you know, in whatever February or March, uh, of 2018, when the market blew up, people found that, um, there was lurking uh, risks because of the behavior of people um, that just amplified, you know, the potential fat tails. And, and I think that's very important is to always step back, uh, you know, try to think for yourself, I guess, and say, you know, what could it be that everybody is missing here that maybe, you know, I might have a slightly better handle on. And, I, you know, for me, fortunately, I've been always been a little bit, uh, maybe because of my physics training or whatever, I've always uh, tried to do some of the thinking for myself from scratch. Uh, and it's very tedious, but, uh, you know, all as being equal, it's generally kept me out of trouble, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I will hope to do so, yeah. It sounds like it has thus far. Uh, l- yeah. Let's talk a little bit about tail risk hedging and the cost. Uh, so if you're buying fire insurance for your house, it has a negative return, right? It has a cost of, of insurance. Uh, would you talk from a high level, just conceptually, how can an investor hedge the tail, the risk, but do it in a way that actually doesn't have a cost over time? How, how does that conceptual framework work? Yeah, so I mean, there's a various ways of looking at it. The first one I'll start with is just this accounting uh, identity, which is right to so the, the cost that you spend on hedging. Let's say you have some option premium, you have to control it. You can't go crazy. You know, if you're earning six percent on your portfolio, you can't spend three percent on tail risk hedging. You want to spend a small amount, call it fifty basis points, whatever the number is. Now, if you don't have any equities, if you're sitting in T bills, then you don't need to hedge. You should not hedge because you don't really have much market risk. You might have inflation risk, which is a different kind of uh, you know tail hedge you might need. But generally speaking, if you're, you know, most investors have 60, 70% in equities and uh, many of them have a lot of embedded capital gains, obviously, that they don't want to, uh, you know, uh, realize. And so if you spend a certain amount of premium, called 50 basis points or so today, over time, it allows you to stay in your portfolio. So you're spending money, yes, but if you put it together with the fact that you are invested in the market and the markets generally tend to go up, then the cumulative return over time, risk-adjusted cumulative return actually goes up. And we've done a lot of studies and, and tests of it. So, so the first thing you can do is when you look at the cost, don't look at the hedging costs as myopically, meaning just year by year, and the the return on your underlying equity portfolio as a multi multiple year long portfolio. Take it, combine it, put it on the same horizon, the long-term horizon. That's number one. Number two is there are occasionally events, um, and today is a great example. I'm very uh, curious, you know, how you came up with this question because it's today is a very interesting time uh, where you can actually do something. And I've written a couple of pieces on this recently. Uh, uh, if you have an equity portfolio, you can actually tilt um, the risk reward for it for essentially no cost, right? So what 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 am I talking about here? So just options market for a second. So so today the S&P 500 is, you know, call it around 4,900. And if you look at the dividend yield on the S&P 500 is about 1.5%. Interest rates are about 5, 4.5%, 5%. So what that means is that interest rates are higher than dividend yields. Now, what that reflects into in the pricing of options today is that if you look at a one-year option, a call option, let's say, uh, on, on equities, it's... Uh, the forward rate, the implied rate for the S&P 500 
is basically higher by that difference between the dividend yield and the interest rate or interest rate and the dividend yield. So the, the forward break-even S&P price is much higher than it is today, which says today you're in a situation where you can, for instance, just an example, sell a 10% out-of-the-money call on the S&P 500 and buy a 10% out-of-the-money put or net premium in, meaning you can insure your hedging portfolio, you insure your equities, if that's what you're interested in hedging, uh, down 10% for one year without any cash out of your pocket by just selling covered calls, so to speak, on the S&P 500, 10%. So you keep 10% of the upside and you lose no more than 10% at expiration. So that's a very interesting situation where you can create these tilts using the option markets where you can actually create a better, safer, at least safer outcome uh, for very little premium out. Um, and the last part I'll just say one thing about the cost is, is if you have tail risk protection, let's say like an option, what tends to happen is when the markets fall sharply like they did during COVID, um, and you have a discipline rule for monetization, i.e. you sell those options in the marketplace, unlike traditional insurance, obviously you can sell options in the marketplace, you can take that capital, which is now much larger because of the crash, the value of the options has gone up, you can redeploy that capital into the stock market. Now, if you think about what we're doing here is just rebalancing, rebalancing back into stocks when stocks are down, which then allows you to capture the rebound. And if you believe in capitalism like I do over the long run, then yes, uh, that rebalancing when things are cheap ends up resulting in net cumulative gains over time. So that's also been demonstrated to be a net value add but the common theme, the common denominator between all three of these things that I mentioned, um, you know, holding your portfolio, being able to, you know, sell something to finance puts or the rebalancing part of it uh, requires individuals to have a longer horizon. You can't just look at month to month, day to day, week to week. You have to think about your portfolio over a long term holding horizon, right, which comes back full circle to where we started. Uh, it is like a race. It's a marathon. It's an ultra marathon, not a sprint. Investing is very much like a long term race, which is why you have to plan things out and then, you know, uh, deploy your capital carefully. And then recognize yeah. what your biases and blind spots are. And your absolutely. And oftentimes people make decisions based on emotions. And, and in my experience, the clients who are and the investors who are less sophisticated in, in this space. They'll make emotional decisions because they just see losses and they have to respond. They have to do something about it. The more sophisticated investors, they actually end up making the same same decisions, but they justify it with you know analysis. But they end up in the same place oftentimes. Uh, you can you can yeah. always rationalize your your moves. Um, so it's really interesting how these cycles just you know repeat over and over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that? You alluded to this a little bit earlier. Do you feel that every investor needs tail risk hedging? And as an investor, how do you know whether you need uh, to hedge against those tails? Yeah, so it comes back to this question. If there's any risk in your portfolio, whether through your own analysis or through you know, more quantitative analysis or something like that, where you feel that there is an event that can happen that could significantly impair your ability to make good decisions or to fund whatever or you know pay your distributions, whatever it might be, then you need tail risk hedging, right? So so the question comes back, there's uh, no general one solution, but if there is an unforeseen event that can happen in your portfolio that you believe could be so damaging uh, that uh, you know you wouldn't be able to make good decisions or you wouldn't be able to recover from it, then yes, you need tail hedging. Now, I can't say everybody needs equity tail hedging because clearly not everybody needs it. Somebody who's uh, but a portfolio of you know twenty percent equities and just a lot of T bills, and they're never going to look at it. They don't need tail hedging on equities because uh, there's no event under which they're probably going to be, you know, forced sellers. So when I talk with friends and colleagues and you know other investors, uh, you, you know, in some of our strategies, I always tell them, uh, you know, the whole goal here is never get forced, never get forced because of things outside your control to make bad decisions. And if you think you're going to get forced, that means you probably needed something. You needed some hedge of some sort. Are there any specific market or economic uh, tail events that you're contemplating today, given you know the, the world in which we live? One thing that has been on my radar screen for quite a while, and this alludes, comes back to this idea of negative, uh, negative carry you know, across 
bond markets and equities and, and so on is this idea that our financial system, especially the banking sector, doesn't work uh, very well when there's negative carry. Now, what does that mean? It just means that if the cost of deposits for most of those banks is high, which it is today because you know rates are quite high, and uh, the cost of deposits is higher than their assets, and many of these assets become non-performing, like uh, you know, could be commercial loans, like we just saw this morning uh, from the announcement from one of the banks. Uh, you know, then you are running in a a place where, on your portfolio, you're not getting any income. But at the same time, if some of those assets get impaired, then you end up in a situation where a you have negative carry, and secondly, your um, the valuation of your basically of your enterprise goes down. So. So to me, one of the big things that could emanate or come from this negative carry in the markets is a second round of banking sector problems. Now, the setup is almost perfect in a way. I'm not saying that we're going to get a banking system crash because, uh, uh, you know, after what the Fed did last year in March, where they effectively gave that you know long-term loan uh, to the banks, uh, you know, banks were sort of bailed out. And today, there is no real sign of banking sector uh, troubles or crisis, at least until this morning. Um, uh, the economy seems to be doing fine. The Fed doesn't seem to be worried. But the underlying frictions are still there. So, and the volatility is very low. So this is almost a perfect setup for something bad to happen. Uh, so it's very much on my radar screen because, again, having done this for 35 years, uh, these are the kind of situations where, uh, you know, Put up the alarm bells for us because uh, this is typically when big moves can happen without very much warning. I know you've spoken and written about uh, one of the biggest investment lessons that you've learned is to not automatically follow the herd. W- would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so you know, I've, it, it comes back to in my training as a physicist, maybe, or you know, going back to maybe even my uh, childhood years, is to actually try to analyze and just try to do everything, uh, you know, step by step yourself and figure out what the assumptions are. And uh, in investing, it's so easy to, you know, take the latest uh, piece of literature or take a formula that somebody's written up and use that to make uh, a decision or take, you know, uh, look at a, a money-making strategy that cannot go wrong. And there's lots of them that are advertised to everybody, which obviously go wrong. So, so you know, from from my perspective, all that means is um, is that there's no substitute for thinking for yourself. And typically, when the herd is doing something, um, you know, you have to be careful. You can't fight the herd because you know trend following and momentum is basically herd. But you also need to know, uh, you know, what are the assumptions that the herd is making that can change. Now, obviously, you don't always know that, and I've made my mistakes for sure, uh, you know, in my 30s, something odd years. But but the idea is to always say, what are the underlying assumptions? How do these assumptions, you know, come under challenge? And then how do you uh, make sure that you're not one of the ones who gets run over when the herd decides to uh, change your mind? So so um, I think, uh, you know, generically speaking, uh, the more analysis and modeling and thinking, whether it's conceptual or quantitative, one can do for themselves, the better, the more likely that what the decisions are going to be more robust. I guess, in other words, you can observe what the herd is doing as one data point, and then you can independently think about it and analyze it and see if it makes sense. And oftentimes yeah. it does make sense, and many times it does not. So you're not just automatically following, but you're doing your own analysis. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I think that makes sense. Um, given your, your science background, I'm curious what you think about AI and machine learning and the potential impacts on investing. Is this going to change everything we do, or is it just a, a small change in the grand scheme of things? I'm still observing it like most investors are, and, and you know, I haven't made my own decision. Now, what we have done is select, self-selected a field, as you probably could say, you know, this field of tailed and rare events where there's not much data. So AI and machine learning, as we know it today at least, relies on having a lot of statistical data from which, you know, you can make, um, you know, good, uh, robust quantitative conclusions. Now, my, my view is that it's a technology that's here to stay. Uh, and it's been around for a long time in different forms, right? Uh, a lot of the technology that we have uh, looks better now, does more things because the computational uh, power and the algorithmic developments that we've seen recently are way beyond what people saw back in the 60s or 70s when, you know, AI and machine learning and other things kind of made its first appearance. 
So I think it exists. And I think like other experiences in the past, um, some of the more simpler stuff will get commoditized, right? So things where, you know, if you have a, a stock portfolio and a bond portfolio, what should be the optimal allocation, right? I mean, that's now commoditized business. You just need to run main, main variance. So I bet you I could just go to, you know, one of the GPTs and say, you know, create for me an optimal portfolio using Markovich, Markovich mean variance. And it'll probably come back with the right answer is my guess. But that's just commodity, right? That's just elevating common human knowledge to a new level. Um, does that mean it's uh, permanently uh, life-changing? Does that mean that investors or investment managers or uh, decision-making uh, will be relegated um, to the machines? I don't think so. I don't think uh, – I, I think as long as there's humans with, you know, fear and greed, uh, we're just going to find a different level playing field where everybody's got AI – but we're going to be making different kinds of maybe higher level uh, errors and, and mistakes. And there'll still be a lot of opportunity for people who are you know, able to take the new technology and uh, other tools and thinking for themselves uh, and succeed at it. So I'm, I'm not there yet until, until we reach uh, the plateau where everybody's a Terminator lookalike and everybody's a machine. Uh, I don't think uh, investing is going to go away, right? I, I could sort of imagine myself sitting 5,000 years ago, you know, when perhaps the first you know, trading between, you know, the ancient uh, humans was invented and somebody saying, you know, look, when we invent fire, does it change everything and will investing go, you know, will we have a job? I didn't. I, I think, you know, technology improves and people just elevate themselves to a new level um, I'm of the belief that uh, I'll still have a job. So. Well, the market is competitive. So if you go to an extreme and you go from a world where there is are no computers trading, you know, so 30, 40 years ago, to a world where it's only computers trading and they're trading against each other, it's a competition. And I don't know if the returns increase, maybe the tail risks increase. You know, it's uh, so it's not clear that it, you just generate more alpha it's it's you know that it's not clear that it's necessarily better because it's a competitive field absolutely and like you just said you know when machines are making markets we've already seen that since i started trading 30 something odd years ago to even the last few years is is when there's a large move in the markets uh, including during covid the depth in just even the e-mini futures contracts just evaporated because a lot of the market making was being done by algorithms by you know bots Think of them as precursors of a lot of the algorithms we have today. So yes, it could be volatility enhancing if most of the actual high frequency uh, market making is actually being uh, you know being done by done by bots. And you know one other thing that kind of resonated with me when you said this thing about if everybody's using computers. So you know as, a, as an aviation uh, person, you know I've studied a lot on how um, uh, you know the the defense industry or the you know the U.S. and the Soviet at that time uh, raced to outdo each other. So back in the 50s and 60s, when we first you know, broke the supersonic and then the hypersonic barrier and, you know, planes were flying at Mach 5, uh, you know, five times the speed of sound, uh, there was this absolute crazy uh, scramble to making faster and faster and faster machines. Everybody said, if you have the faster aircraft, uh, you're going to win the war. And the people were making these extremely fast machines and there was a beautiful uh, book written by, and I recommend it to you and to your readers, uh, about uh, Colonel John Boyd, uh, who was a tactician for the Air Force and then for the Marines. And he um, basically came up with this, maybe he and others obviously came up with this idea that speed was not the only thing, agility was just as important. So at that time, um, I think the F-16, which is one of the fighter jets that's still in the Air Force, was invented. And what was discovered is that, you know, if you have a very fast aircraft and a very agile aircraft, the fast aircraft is just going to go by the, sh the agile aircraft. The agile aircraft is just going to do a loop and come back behind the fast aircraft and shoot it down. So I think at some point, this um, need for speed, this need for faster, better, more, just got supplanted. But is this actually smarter? And, and I think you could be at this inflection point where once this whole you know, craziness about, uh, you know, better, faster AI chips and so on settles down. People say, well, wait a minute, is just faster better? Or is, you know, is this is this technology actually better uh, in the realms that we're interested in? Or is certain type of agility and thinking, uh, algorithmic 
dominance even better. Yeah, and so. from my perspective, it's the big question is, is there real insight? You know, all this yeah. information is publicly available. Is there is there an ability to extract real insight that others don't see that is is the truth that the market hasn't recognized? That's the hard part. Absolutely. And it's an open question, right? One other thing that came up in, uh, you know, one semi-academic uh, conference I was at is, is once everybody knows that a lot of the AI algorithms are just scraping the web and getting information from what's out there, what stops somebody from manufacturing misinformation that then educates a feedback loop where things just get out of control, where misinformation begets misinformation? Because obviously, if people are relying on decisions based on the scraped data, then if you can lead them to making bad decisions by creating bad data, obviously, right? So, so you're now at the level, the hall of mirrors, right? The game just gets elevated to a different level now. Uh, so that's why I, I don't believe that this is the end of financial markets or the end of, uh, you know, people's mental ability to think and do things by thinking and by logic. I think, uh, if anything, uh, the need for logic and common sense is probably even higher now than it was before. Is there one unique insight that you've learned in your, you know, 30 plus years in the industry that you think many may not think about or have heard of that you'd like to share? Uh, I think pretty much everything I know people have learned and experimented and, and found for themselves. But one thing for me personally that I go back to, which has been uh, very helpful, obviously, in surviving, doing, being doing well, see, just actually enjoying every day. Uh, when I come in and do my work is this, uh, this idea that every morning when I come in, I am learning something new. And, you know, it's, it's just this freshness that comes from this putting that hat on every single day and saying, what am I going to learn some new today? You know, whether it's new scientific stuff that might have application to finance or, you know, maybe running a little bit better or maybe just doing a trade a little bit better or doing, having a little bit more self-control or, you know, discovering something else. But this whole idea that every day when you come in, uh, you know, we have this luxury, this vantage point in the financial markets to be able to make a living doing something that we like to do is that every day is a new learning experience. And that is absolutely precious. So for me, that's really the anchor, um, you know, is that there's more to learn every single day. And that's sort of what keeps me in the business. Yeah, and it's it's what keeps it interesting and uh, keeps at least me personally driven to get better and better. And, and it's a lifelong journey. And you'll never get to the finish line on like a race uh, because there is no finish line. You're just constantly improving. Absolutely. Every day is a finish line or tomorrow's finish line. Exactly. That's right. Uh, Well, Veneer, you've been very kind with your time. We spent over an hour. You could have probably run a half marathon during that time. So I appreciate (laughs) you uh, spending some time with me and uh, sharing your insights. Well, thanks for having me. It's a uh, pleasure and uh, looking forward to more of your writings and and, uh, podcasts as well. And I am as well. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit our website at insightfulinvestor.org to access past shows and learn more about our podcast. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at insightfulinvestor.org. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations, nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.